I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am so delighted to be joined by Victor Laval today. I've been a fan for so long of, of the seven works of fiction that he's written, four novels, two novellas, and a collection of short stories. His novels have been included in Best of the Year list by the New York Times Book Review, the LA Times, the Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, and more. He lives in the Bronx with his wife and kids and teaches at Columbia University. And his latest novel is called Lone Women. Welcome, Victor. I'm happy to be here. So before we even get going, I should say that I'm nervous to talk to you about this book because I don't want to spoil anything. It's... And <laughs> <laughs> It is built for uh, to be ruined by conversation. I was almost contemplating having you on like in a couple of months after everybody's read it so I, I could ask chance. you all... <laughs> but this is our situation. So that's the <laughs> so, so let's start with the title of the book because the book cover image is so striking. It's a lone woman, one, standing in the in the plains of Montana. But the book title, of course, is plural. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, so the novel is a historical gothic horror something kind of blend. But at heart, it is a really, really thoroughly researched book. And it's about women homesteaders who went out to Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota, those kind of areas, and made claims on their own, meaning they were either single. The law of the time allowed for either single women or widows to make claims for land under their own name. And when they proved up after three years of living on the land to own it in their own names, as opposed to like their husband signs off or their father or something like that. And they called these women lone women. And I just felt like, oh, well, actually, that's not entirely true. The original title of the book was going to be Proving Up. And then Karen uh. Russell 
had a, a, yeah. a long story, I believe, called Proving Up, or like a novella called Proving Up. And I know better than to go into toe-to-toe with Karen Russell. I said, <laughs> I got to change this title. And uh, Lone <laughs> Women actually turned out to, I felt like, was even more accurate to the, 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 the mood and the theme. And I felt like it was also an interesting, you know, as you say, is how could it be plural? If it's a lone woman, how could it be plural? And then that's maybe one of the things that would be interesting. For sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you do so well in the book is just explain how lonely this this homesteading was and how you'd like to think, I probably in this age in America too, it was a real like rugged individualism moment and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps all alone is incredibly difficult very difficult and in fact uh, there's a character i have somewhat early on say to her like because she she so she's a black the main character is a black woman coming to montana alone and uh she's getting a a a ride from a wagon man named mr olson out to her claim and she admits to him her concerns like number one i'm a woman alone then even more specifically i'm a black woman out here in montana alone where there don't seem to be many if any others and mr olson says while there are lots of prejudices floating all around everyone here knows that this land is trying to kill them and so everyone will help because when they need help they're gonna they know they're gonna need you And in this weird sort of way, it creates a, it's not that everyone likes each other. It's not that everyone accepts each other. It's that everyone knows I'm going to die without some help. Absolutely. And that that became a theme. And I love that later on in the book, Adelaide says, actually, the land doesn't care about us. It's not trying to kill us. We came to this land. Yes. (laughs) What were we expecting? And yeah, it was, I, I hope there, thanks for catching that. Cause I felt like it was a, the, on some level, the, the, the book is also about watching just Adelaide who's lived in her previous life. She lived 31 years on the farm with her family under the care slash thumb of her mother and father and the burdens of family. And so her coming out there is really in a way like a, a late coming of age kind of story as well. And I wanted that to be one of her revelations is like, we're not the center of any of this. And then on top of that, right. And this land is not a land for me. And what does that mean for me? And all the, all the rest. And of course, a perfect example of fake advertising is Adelaide in California has read about all of the opportunity in, in Minnesota and, and of course the, the wonderful weather. Yes. Which, (laughs) which, oops. Thanks to the newsletter from a woman named Maddie Kramer, who was a real a real woman. She was a journalist mm-hmm. who moved to Montana from Iowa, and she moved to Montana in 1908. And she worked on a newspaper in a small town there. And her writing was interesting enough, or got enough attention, that it came to the attention of the Great Northern Railway. And then they said to her, "We'd love if you'd write a newsletter, so other single women might know about the opportunities here." But of course, it's also advertising for because you got to buy railway tickets to come out there so there was a they were deeply invested in her convincing people to come and one of the people she convinced was adelaide yeah when it comes to hiring you need to trust your gut but what if you could give your gut some help when you want to find quality talent fast 
you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like matching, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor the job. Indeed does the hard hiring work for you. Sponsor a job and we'll match you with quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description right when you post. With Indeed, you can start hiring fast. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applications that match your must-have job requirements. Visit indeed.com slash Maris to start hiring now. Just go to indeed.com slash Maris. Indeed.com slash Maris. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I, I sort of love that the, the time period, of course, it, it's 1915. And that's kind of an in-between time when like some places had electricity, but not all. Some people had cars, but not nearly all. And you are so good at making the the, the setting desolate and <laughs> dark. And I'm wondering, did you go to Montana to to research this? Well, I'd been through Montana years before, and I, but honestly, like I drove across the top of the country when I was moving from back from Oakland to New York City, and I passed through Montana, fell in love with absolutely its beauty, but also got a taste for its desolation, you know, and it really never left me. That stayed with me. And then I came across this book many years later called Montana Women Homesteaders, edited by a woman named Sarah Carter. And in a way, it was just more like as I was reading what the women homesteaders were going through, I could recall that place I'd been. And so I felt like, okay, maybe I can get a kind of a sense, even though that had been the summer, it still was bleak and desolate and beautiful. So I just kind of extrapolated from there. I admit I didn't go back. I couldn't. We had two younger kids. I, I just couldn't make it back. 100%. That's that's fair. Um, yeah, I, I think one of the things that the images that that stayed with me is that it's so flat there that at night when it's dark and in the winter when it's mostly dark you can't really see anything unless there's perhaps a candle in a window somewhere yes and you can see a, a candle in a window in a home that's miles away because it's potentially literally the only light anywhere on the plains it was it was interesting because i was Thinking of it, it was almost like when, you know, when you when you dive really deep and they talk about like if it gets dark down there, like you you really can get lost and confused about which way is up. And like you have to breathe out to follow the bubbles. That's mm. literally like save yourself if you're really deep. And I felt like it was a similar thing, but how much more frightening that it's 
or as frightening that you're on solid ground in theory you know there's land out there but it's just like a great blank shadow yeah in a 10 by 10 foot cabin and it's yeah one of the things is just the idea of fixing up this cabin to withstand wind and to you know she was told that the well had water in it and that wasn't entirely true right let's talk about adelaide's previous life a little bit she had been part of a small community in in california uh so she was part of the black farming community in Southern California. Specifically, she's in a place called Lucerne Valley. There are some towns out there that Victorville, Albertville, apparently now, I believe either Albertville or Victorville is now like a a state park, but it was once a thriving black farm community. And she's a part of that, this community that was drawn out to Southern California with the promise of making air quotes, colonizing Southern California. And as is the case with Montana, the government was so desperate to have this land sort of settled now that they've removed the indigenous population or killed off the indigenous population, that they relaxed the rules in ways that that was part of the surprise for me doing the research was I just always assumed like, okay, white guys, that's who's getting this land entirely. And of course they did great. But then it said like, no women could come. And I said like, okay, does that just mean white women? And they said, well, it does mean white women, but it also means black women black men, not Chinese people, because there was an anti-Chinese exclusion act that existed at that time. Right. But the, 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 the complexity of what was allowed was so surprising to me because I think I had that, you know, that problem of the present thinking the past is very simple and the present is complicated. And in fact, you know, past is pretty complicated. The depictions of Westerns that we've seen in most of cinema are pretty simple, too. Pretty skewed, yes. Pretty pretty skewed. One of the things that Adelaide's mother says to her that really stuck with me is, a woman is a mule, she said. And one of the things that you do in this book is you show us how heavy the load is (laughs) that, that... that Adelaide has to carry, inherited from her parents. Tell me even about like talking about the physicality of Adelaide's move from California to Montana. One of the things that I, first, the the woman who does a mule thing is definitely an allusion to Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, Their eyes were watching God. There's a line in there that is sort of a play on that, right? So that I I wanted that to just kind of echo or ring a little bit. But it was also me channeling my grandmother, who's a, a Ugandan immigrant, but who, she was born in the early 1900s, early-ish 1900s, like maybe 1908, 1910, and lived a life of a lot of work, a lot of toil, even when she came to the U.S. and all the rest. And so really felt this deep conviction that a woman's life is just rough. You just got to find a way to make it through. And occasionally there's moments of joy, but it's just hard. Right. And that's that's what it is. And so I I I and I saw my mom sort of hear all that, but also hate it, you know, sort of like, well, that maybe that was Uganda, but I don't want I didn't come to the US for that. And then it was hard in certain ways. So there was that tension back and forth that I wanted to sort of tap into. But the way I felt like I would tap into it was literally through the body moving through space and Adelaide's body moving through space as a way to suggest like both her strength, but also 
the the struggle and the burden that she is literally carrying with this steamer trunk that she's bringing with her, but also the burden of that kind of legacy that her mother is passing on to her, thinking in her own way, I'm helping you because right. I'm teaching you the real world. I'm not understanding that the real world may want to do this to me and demand this of me, but why should you want to do this to me? And that that mother-daughter question feels like a, a rich one. Yes. Yes. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, about Adelaide's previous life in California um, that, that I'm not familiar with is her, her favorite book that her father would read to her was The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. Yes. It's a surprising Bronte pick. Yeah, of all the Bronte yeah, tell me about picks. that. <laughs> well, the main reason why I picked that is the book is because it's in its time, it was actually a really forward-thinking feminist novel. It's a really strong feminist novel. And the main idea, the thing that made it like a huge controversy in its time is that there's a wife of a of a louse of a guy who he's he's a heavy drinker, he wastes their money. He's verbally and emotionally abusive. And then she has the audacity to leave him. And at that time, it was the most scandalous thing in the world to say that a woman should not put up with abuse, that she should leave. And, and I liked the idea that of all the Bronte books, it would be, number one, Anne doesn't get any near, anywhere near the same love, right? Yes. And then two, that it, I felt like, if anyone went back and checked out that book, you'd say, oh, that's so interesting that this, this Black farming family was reading this really forward-thinking feminist novel that, and then that it was Adelaide's favorite book would suggest, even though she'd been, she's been living under the thumb of her parents and following the rules of being a dutiful daughter, there was a part of her that wanted to be free. And then this is the way it happened. Absolutely. And then, and then of course, that old familiar chestnut is uh you can never quite be free of your past. You, you can't, I mean, it's a, it was a little on the nose, even when I was writing it, but she's <laughs> carrying a steamer trunk everywhere. You say like, wherever you go, you bring your baggage, you uh, know? Absolutely. Let's talk about the town of Big Sandy a little bit. There is an opera house there. Yes. Two restaurants. But not much else. And 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 how far does Adelaide live from from the main stretch of town? She's a ways away. She's about I think it's like fourteen miles from town. If I'm remembering correctly, I apologize. I'm forgetting my own book. But I think it's about that far. And that was the case with many of the towns where there was homesteading. There'd be this central town, something someplace small. The population in the book is about five hundred, including townspeople and then the, all the people in the on their claims. The modern day Big Sandy, as of 2020, its census was 600 people. Mm. So it remains a small, but seems like a lovely town, right? And in my acknowledgments, I apologize to them for what I did <laughs> to their towns, and I hope they wouldn't take it too badly. But uh, But that's the town, and it is like the opera house is the sort of, is a thing that I've, as I was doing my research, I found in big places like Havre and Butte and Helena, there would be opera houses, but even in small towns, there would be opera houses, which can be translated as like just theaters, community right. theaters, like that kind of thing. But there was something about the fact that they never just called it 
community house or community theater or anything. They always said opera house. And there was this sense of the ways they were maybe is a sign of their ambition, but also their yearning to hold on to some kind of like imagined European beginnings or cultures or Eastern seaboard culture now that they were out in this place that was so desolate. Absolutely. And then, and then of course it works so well if you're, if you're going Gothic. I mean, it, it doesn't hurt. When I found <laughs> out that that was, that there were opera houses, I was like, oh, and we can bring the whole town in and there can be sets and the big, you know, the big denouement can happen there. And I said, oh, this is good. Adelaide starts in California and ends in Montana, but has the same problem that people won't understand what what is in the box. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about shame and when it's smart to worry about what other people think because other people can be terribly dangerous. Yes. And and when it's overwhelming in a bad way. Well, like kind of the, the central question I was sort of ruminating over in the with the book was about like having a family secret or family secrets. And the, so, I mean, maybe to pull it back a bit, my family, we have more specifically, we have like a, a great deal of what would be called mental illness in the family in various generations, various ways. And, and there was a great deal of shame around the sort of erratic behavior and strange ways of members of our family who we loved and were a part of us and all the rest. And so the the narrative we had was like, you never, you never tell anyone, you never talk about it, you never admit to that kind of thing, right? Like nobody, nobody knows what goes on inside the house, right? And so I was raised with that. But then as I got older, a good bit older, one of the things I started to understand was everybody knew something was off, right? But in a way, because we we agreed or refused to talk about it, we agreed not to not talk about it, we kind of walled ourselves off from help, right. from safety, from perhaps somebody else saying, this isn't normal. You shouldn't go through this. Maybe someone, maybe they need help. That family member needs help not to just be shut away right. or to be shut down. But there were all these healthy ways of living that were right outside our sort of walled city. But we didn't understand, I didn't understand it until I had left the city, so to speak, you know? And so the book is very much about um, that idea of like, not only there being a family secret, but like the, the, the deeper revelation that it's pretty rare that families are actually keeping their secrets right. from anyone but themselves, right? And that that was kind of what, when with Adelaide, traveling to Montana with nothing but her steamer trunk, she thinks I have escaped the families behind me. My parents are dead. Everything has happened there. Uh, that's not a spoiler. That's like the first two, three pages, I think, of the book. <laughs> and so over here, I can start again. But then the more she's up there, the more other people can even see what's wrong. What's, what's with you? Why are you so secretive? Why you should keep us at an arm's length? All this kind of thing. And in the process of the book, in part, is her learning that like shame was a was not only a, a source of shame but also a method of control and that there's something powerful about releasing the, the shameful secret 
and seeing if maybe rather than destroying you to have everyone know, it actually saves you. I am sorry to admit that in reading this story as, as a fable of escaping some of that judgment, I couldn't help but think of all of the people that I wish could leave Florida and Texas <laughs> like right now. So Adelaide's closest neighbors are Grace and Sam Price. And Sam is a little kid. And Grace is probably not someone who Adelaide would choose to make her best friend. But her, her choices are slim. It's slim to none. I mean, if it's not going to be Grace, it's going to be nobody. And it's it's fun to watch their relationship grow and change throughout the book. Sorry. I appreciate that. You know, it's funny. Is So my wife is listening to it now on audiobook. And the, the woman who's read it on the, for the audiobook is, is wonderful. But one of the things she was laughing, she said, you know, one of the moments that I believed most about their friendship is the moment when Right at the beginning when Grace shows up and is immediately criticizing all her choices about the house and all the things she's decided to do in with her decor and everything. And then Adelaide has to just sit there for a moment and say, I'm going to either kick this woman out or I'm going to choose to accept that this is the friend who judges everything I do, but she does show up for me. And, and, I, and my wife was like, I really believed that moment, but she has to decide like, the, what do I gain? What do I lose from this friendship? But this is who she is. And then on my end, on Adelaide's end, I'm the weird isolated lady in the cabin. I don't know that I have a right to be pushing anyone away, you know? And then on some level, that's what friendships are built on, you know? Absolutely. And one of the things I loved about the narrator I listened to a bunch of it. Is she so great with the anachronisms? At one point in the book, Grace slaps the shit out of someone. Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> perfect. <laughs> perfect moment. And and it's like, well, we understand what happened there. Yeah. The imagery is vivid. <laughs> I just felt like the like in that moment saying so, like she loosed her unbridled rage or just was too delicate. He was like, no, she slapped the shit out of that lady. <laughs> and you go, okay, I get it. I'm wondering, so so stop me if you don't want to talk about this, but I, I, I think you've discussed how this book is about a metaphorical monster, at least. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the sections that were written from the monster's perspective that, that look like poetry. Yeah, well, so the original plan was, like, I originally wrote those sections in the same prose as everything else. And my editor, the wonderful Chris Jackson, he said, like, it just seems, it seems off to me that a, be, a person, a life that is so different from everyone else's would be related in the exact same way. And then, you know, in a weird way, one of the things I sort of like pulled back to was beloved, how beloved talks. And the idea that there's something 
one of the ways you know that there's a different perspective is in the way that she communicates in the novel because it is at least certainly for a while it is disjointed and strange and it's part of the strangeness of beloved coming back and i i kind of use that as an inspiration saying like yeah it's really it's a it's got to be a vastly different way of communicating and understanding and then i can't, and then i what i tried was that sort of more lyrical poetic sort of form and it felt good and what it also i hoped what it also did was it suggested a much deeper uh, being was inside there, regardless of what they might appear to be to other people. And that that would be another layer of the tragedy is that this is what was inside all along. And, and look at how that being was treated, you know, like somehow it's terrible at any, in any way to, for anything to be mistreated but when you understand that there's a thinking sentient being inside you, it's even worse because you go oh my god it was this is a person i can a thing i can understand went through this and so so that was the that was the way that we came to that well i love that i could ask you many more questions but <laughs> I will will end this with asking you to recommend some some books for us. Yes, one of the books I'm going to recommend is someone who was a guest on your show, The Survivalists, by Kashana Cauley. Yeah, I, I thought it was a wonderful book, and like for a debut novel. I mean, I know she's rich. She's been she wrote for the Daily Show, all of those stuff. So she is hardly, in my mind, like not a new writer. But I thought it was just a really confident and wonderful debut. That's been out for a little while. So the other one I would recommend is just out. It's a novel called The Strange by a writer named Nathan Ballingrud. And the best way to describe it, it's so it's kind of sci-fi-ish. It's essentially about a 13-year-old a girl on Mars in the future, on, a, on a, a settlement on Mars in the future. And the way I think they describe it that's really great is True Grit on Mars. Wow, sold. Yeah. Yes, and it's it's <laughs> wonder, and the writing is beautiful. So, those are my two suggestions. Love that. Thank you, Victor. And the book is called Lone Women. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 